Welcome to the Power of Sports podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Miller, and in today's episode, we speak to Kenneth P. Vogel about sports gambling in the United States today. Vogel is a reporter in the Washington Bureau of the New York Times, where he covers the intersection of money, influence, and politics. He has covered politics and government at all levels, from small-town cop shops and school boards to state houses, Congress, and the presidential campaign trail. He has reported for Politico, various regional newspapers, and the Center for Public Integrity in Washington. He is the author of Big Money, $2.5 billion, One Suspicious Vehicle, and a Pimp on the Trail of the Ultra-Rich Hijacking American Politics, which chronicles the characters and motivations behind the explosion of money in American politics after the Supreme Court's decision in Citizens United in 2010. As Vogel's reporting on sports gambling shows, since 2018, when the Supreme Court struck down a law that had previously prohibited gambling in all but two American states, we have entered an era of legalized sports betting. And as a result, there have been a host of societal changes. So please join me as we learn from Ken about the state of legalized sports gambling in the U.S. today, the importance of smartphones and geolocation technology in online betting, the impact legalization is having on Native American groups, and even the bizarre behavior of some gamblers on the Staten Island Ferry after New Jersey legalized sports gambling, but New York did not. going today? Doing pretty well. Yeah, I'm happy to be with you. I have to express my condolences for the Super Bowl loss to the Eagles, but maybe you're a March Madness fan. Maybe you're excited for the tournament that's coming up. Yeah, like Philly down the line on sports teams. So despite Philadelphia's rich and storied college basketball tradition, there are no Philly teams in March Madness. Oh, really? There's uh, not going to be one this year? No, I don't think. Is Villanova possibly getting in? I don't know. It was a down year. I've heard that they're having a rough patch. Is it Jay Wright? Is that who? Jay Wright, yeah. He's, I think he's, he's gone now. Philly legend, yeah. yeah. If you listen to Philly Sports Talk Radio, you would think that the only thing that matters is finding excuses and uh, people to blame for the Super Bowl loss. The amount of time spent talking about the sod father, the groundskeeper who allegedly <laughs> boxed the field, giving the Chiefs an advantage. Whether he was a Chiefs fan, it's really like JFK level uh, conspiracizing. That, that's really funny. I didn't know about that. I'll have to listen to more sports talk radio out of Philly. Yeah. Uh, listen, I'm really grateful to you for taking the time. And I'm really excited to do this show. I've been wanting to do a show on sports gambling for a long time. So thank you for making that possible. So I always start by asking my guests about their own experiences in sports growing up. So I know that you're a reporter for the New York Times and you're not just a sports gambling reporter, but the sports side of it, if we can focus on that today, I'm curious how you got into sports more generally. Yeah, I became like a huge Philadelphia Eagles fan very early on. I didn't play much organized, but I guess I played soccer in high school for a couple of years. I played a lot of basketball and football sort of with friends. I went to a big public school in Philadelphia's near north suburbs. It was not among the most athletic people in my class and didn't go out for any of the teams beyond soccer. But uh, yeah, it was just uh, really instilled with the Philadelphia sports fandom, I guess. I mean, 
inflicted with it is a better way to put it <laughs> uh, from a pretty early age and have remained pretty devout. And I live in Washington, D.C. and work out of the Times, the Washington Bureau. And my family doesn't live in Philadelphia, so I don't really have a ton of ties there. But in some ways, the distance has actually made me become more ardent and uh, perhaps obnoxious in my Philadelphia <laughs> sports fandom. And there's actually an email list. This is something that was written about by The Ringer recently, an email list of Philadelphia like, expats, mostly in media, but also in politics, who live in D.C., who communicate regularly about Philadelphia sports and about the Eagles. So there's sort of quite prominent people on there, including some members of Congress and anchors for top political news and the newscast on television and the like. And we're a pretty prideful, but also cynical and pessimistic bunch. What do you attribute that to? I didn't, didn't think that a subject would come up in too much depth. And obviously I want to shift gears to gambling soon, but what do you think it is about Philadelphia that makes the sports fans so ardent, as you say? Yeah, certainly there's a long, long tradition of losing. I think the Philadelphia Phillies are the first team ever in any sport, in any league to lose 10,000 games. And they're now like into the 11,000s. And Philadelphia is like a real chip on its shoulder. It's a blue collar city and in the shadow of New York and Washington and even Boston to some extent. And there's a pessimism, but also like a pride in like the civic pessimism and the civic sort of hostility almost that is the prevailing ethos, I think, among Philadelphians in a lot of sectors. And it becomes particularly pronounced when it comes to the sports teams. Hmm. That's fascinating. So you were growing up and did you have any sports heroes? You said the fandom as a Philly kid was built in to growing up there, but were there particular Eagles or... Oh, yeah. I love Randall Cunningham. I went to the Super Bowl this year, which was not a great experience. I describe it as it was it was fun until it wasn't fun. And then it was very unfun. The last Super Bowl, Super Bowl 52, that the Eagles went to and won, which was amazing. I got to meet Randall Cunningham before the game and got his wow. autograph one. A jersey that I'm looking at right now hanging in my office. It was the one that was like a, the moment when my Philadelphia sort of sports awareness was really like cresting and my obsession, I guess you could call it. And he was the quarterback of the Eagles back then. And they had this dominant defense, but Randall was the most exciting player. And he, in many ways, was a pioneer of the style of quarterback play that has become more common now. But at the time, people didn't really know what to make of him. And the Eagles, I don't think, took full advantage of his talents. And so that was a great, that's one of many great wasted Philadelphia sports talents and great debates about what if, like, what if there had been a Buddy Ryan had a more, more of an offensive focus or system around Randall Cunningham with that great defense when they have gone further into the playoffs, but uh, chalk it up to the disappointment call. Wow, that's really fascinating. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, he was probably underutilized. And I know he was a pioneer in that sort of style of running quarterback. But as you said, the scheme maybe wasn't perfectly suited to him. That's very interesting. And I know that you cover money, politics, and influence for the Times. But clearly, you are a big sports fan. So I'm curious, what was the moment that you were able to say, I'm covering these issues, but I also want to do sports gambling? From just like a newsworthiness perspective or from like an interest perspective, it was seeing this just 
saturation wave of advertising that washed over us when sports betting started to become legal in these different states. And I was just taken aback by the degree to which that advertising and the sponsorships and partnerships with the sports media outlets really came to dominate the sports media and sports coverage and sports, really. Like it just became like inescapable. Sure. And it caught my eye then, and I started to think about it in terms of these emergent industries or disruptive industries and how they get a foothold and sometimes get a foothold in a way that they are moving more quickly than regulators and lawmakers and this sort of body politic in realizing, hey, something is happening here. And so that's something that fits more closely into what I do cover, which is money and politics, primarily at the federal level, but also in the states. And it was a state issue. And so I started thinking, like, how could we as the New York Times provide some perspective and context as to what's happening here and why it's happening and how it's changing sports and sports media and some of the other stakeholders, the Indian tribes that had had a real dominant place in the gambling ecosystem in the United States and what are the public health risks and other public policy implications that come with a massive change like this. So that's sort of was the thinking and the impetus for us taking a look at it. And then, like I said, I'm in the Washington Bureau covering money and politics and sort of public policy issues. And we built a team to look at this issue that included other reporters who do the same thing. My colleague, Eric Lipton, who's also in the Washington Bureau of the New York Times, and that's reporters in New York on the business desk who do business investigations, including involving media. My colleague, Emily Steele, who wrote about Dave Portnoy as yeah. an exemplifier of a certain type of marketing in this. We had sports reporters and sports editors, including some who had a history with the tribes. It was a real team effort and the type of thing that the New York Times, for all the grief that it occasionally gets from critics, is uniquely positioned to be able to dive into a big, complicated subject like this from a number of different angles that you don't necessarily see other media outlets that are more focused on a particular niche, whether that's gambling or sports or lobbying or what have you. So to be able to bring all those areas of expertise together with some very smart editors to figure out how to approach a big subject like this in a way that is hopefully digestible to our readers and can, um, you know, sort of penetrate the thinking of the industry and people around the industry and people grappling with the industry from a public policy perspective in a way that maybe more niche publications might not be able to. Yeah, definitely landed that way for me. There's no question. I've been thinking about these subjects for some time, and yet it is challenging to get your head around all the different stakeholders and interest groups. And so let's start with PASPA, the Professional and Amateur Sports Protection Act, which had until 2018 prohibited states from authorizing sports gambling. So why did the Supreme Court overturn it? Overturn it is an unconstitutional infringement on states' rights. Basically, the idea that the Tenth Amendment reserves to states all the rights that aren't explicitly granted to the federal government, and that would include the ability to regulate gambling. So what PASA did is it had prohibited states from legalizing sports betting, except for four states that were grandfathered in, and really only one of which was offering sports betting in a big way, Nevada, Las Vegas, it was offering all kinds of gambling in a big way, and New Jersey had tried to legalize sports betting numerous times under initially under Governor Chris Christie, 
And the idea there was not this ambitious landscape changing shift in the way that sports is covered and played, but rather just an effort to revitalize the casinos in Atlantic City, which had fallen on rough times. And the idea was that if they legalized sports betting, they could create a mini Vegas type sports book in New Jersey. Actually, the NCAA with the lead plaintiff, they were the ones that were most concerned. So like, this is a violation of PAPSA. We don't want this. And the other, the professional leagues joined in. And so too did the U.S. Department of Justice, all these powerful stakeholders saying, no, this violates this federal law. And it went up and down the ladder of the federal court several times and actually was dismissed. And then they passed another law that came at it from a different way New Jersey did and ultimately got to the Supreme Court. And then in May of 2018, the Supreme Court struck down the law and the floodgates were wide open for the industry to go to individual states to push to legalize. Do you have any thought on why it was 2018? Obviously it was in the court system for some time, but why now? From the legal jurisprudence side, it's just, that's when it happened. And then a lot of these cases take a long time to work their way through the court system. But from a, like an industry perspective and a sports perspective and a state lobbying perspective, there were a lot of things that were coming together in advance of that and in anticipation of that, that really made it such that when the law was finally struck down and the ban was lifted, that it was went from like zero to a hundred like that. And among those things were that the gambling company, I say gambling company, now I'm not referring to the big casino companies, but rather these tech startups, DraftKings and Vandal in particular, had been working in the States for years before that to legalize and build a business around daily fantasy sports. And so they had formed, they forged relationships with lawmakers, lobbyists, and the sports leagues to bring them along and get them used to something that involved money and sports. Even if it wasn't full-fledged sports betting, it was like a junior varsity version of it and talking to some of the lawmakers and lobbyists around this, they were like, they thought that they, when they were legalizing fantasy sports in some of these states that like, yeah, we, we've done with that issue. We do Even though those companies were saying because of the sort of like legal underpinnings of it, the arguments that they were making, they were saying, actually, this is not daily fantasy sports is not sports betting. It's different. You can legalize this, even though there's that federal law. And even though your states may have prohibitions on sports betting. This is something totally different. And these states, eventually, most of them bought into this, not all of them, but most of them bought into this and legalized or at least allowed daily fantasy sports, even if they didn't proactively legalize it, they just took a laissez-faire approach. So that then by the time that the PASA was struck down, these lobbyists and companies came back to the states and said, hey, now we want to do full-fledged sports betting. Some of them were like, I thought we already did that. And others were like, you said that this was like daily fantasy sports was like totally different than sports betting. And now you're saying, now we want to do sports betting. So you had a little like congruity or distortance maybe is a better word with that, but it really did lay the groundwork. And so they were able to, they were able to hit the ground running almost immediately after the Supreme Court decision, you had states legalizing within months, including New Jersey. And what about that distinction though, Ken, because they were able to get this 
legalized because of that distinction. What was the argument that these tech startups were making? They said, and this is a common dynamic in debates about gambling, they said that daily fantasy sports is actually a game of skill, not a game of chance. And that is like the legal trigger in some of these states, and in both of these states actually, for determining like what is gambling and what is not gambling. And so they they got the state attorneys general and, and lawmakers to agree that daily fantasy sports is a game of skill. And this is like a similar argument and therefore it doesn't qualify as gambling. And this is a similar argument to that which the casino companies were making a few years earlier when they were trying to legalize online poker. And they said, actually, poker is a game of skill, not a game of chance. And therefore you should let us do it despite your laws prohibiting gambling and games of chance. In some states, there were people, there, there were, there were public officials who said, no, that's ridiculous. Of course, it's like a game of, a game of chance. It's not like the players of daily fantasy sports are the actual athletes. They're the ones who have the skills. And the industry produced a number of these studies that showed that if someone is more skilled at this, then they will win more often than not. And it became accepted even as critics who the arguments and said it's a little bit circular, like it's a game of skill. Like what is the skill? The skill is gambling, therefore it's gambling. But that ultimately was not that sort of seeming logical flaw was not the one that was embraced by most public policymakers. And so the effect there is, if it is a game of skill, let's just say for the sake of argument, it is, the most skillful people are making a lot of money in these online tech startups like DraftKings and FanDuel. And on the other side of things, you've got a lot of people who are make, who are losing a lot, including I wrote about David Hummel, who lost $30,000 as a result of his gambling on sports. And when you attribute that to floodgates opening, the doors opening after the Supreme Court struck down past. But what is it? What's so attractive about these online gaming platforms that attracts people like David Hummel to go in and unfortunately lose so much money? Yeah, to be clear, there there is a lot of interest in this and there are lawmakers. You know, I say this is perhaps attributable to my like cynical view of the way that like influence works in politics, that it was a very aggressive lobbying campaign and very sophisticated and they laid the groundwork and they built relationships. They spent a lot of money on contributions and building these advocacy groups. And that's all true. But also there was a like a pent up interest in sports betting from sports fans and from people who were just gambling aficionados and polls show this, polls show that sports betting is popular. And look, you look at the numbers and a lot of people are betting on sports. There were also efforts because this was like such a new industry, there were like very aggressive efforts to recruit and cultivate customers, acquire customers. And so some of those efforts have been criticized and maybe even viewed retroactively by the industry itself, if not predatory, playing on some of the like instincts that are all, or impulses that are also those that are common within folks who have a predilection for addiction or already have an addiction, a gambling addiction. And so the types of promotions that we're talking about include these risk-free bets. I'm using the air quotes that you could see, but your yes, listeners uh, won't be able to see there. Where they, and these are the type, by the way, this is the type of uh, promotion that David Hummel was first drawn to from the company FanDuel. And the idea here is like that the FanDuel would refund your bets if you lose. 
or give you credits for additional bets and some other types of promotions or deposit matches you put in hundred dollars to charge your account and they'll match your hundred dollars. And it's like the, like a high tech version of when you'd have people who were like gambling promoters in a city you would have from Philadelphia and I saw this people would go on like trips to Atlantic city, just an hour, 15 minutes away. And they would get you know, as inducement to get on the bus. The promoters would give them like, here's $50 and free bet vouchers. And of course, like once you're in the door, the idea from the industry's perspective is you're not just going to bet their $50. Like once you bring it, maybe that investment will there. So you're going to keep betting. And that's that I think is the, was the idea and is the idea behind, behind these types of online updates of those $50 free bet vouchers. And we see them continue to do it in addition to all the advertising and sponsorships that I talked about piquing my interest in this in the first place. So it's like almost impossible to watch a game these days. It is impossible to watch a game in almost any sport these days without getting bombarded with these ads. And these ads are promising in a lot of cases, these types of bets. Now there are some companies, including I should say FanDuel has moved away from that risk-free nomenclature after some criticism and to view it charitably and perhaps some self reassessment of whether this does in fact play on the instincts that are consistent with like addiction, addiction behavior. And nonetheless, this is, and I should also say the states in a lot of cases have encouraged this. They have allowed these companies to write off as deductions from the amount of taxes that they would pay to the state, these, these promotions, these like risk-free bets or bet matches. Or what Why? have you. So there's, there's a lot of incentive for these companies to show their investors that they're bringing a lot of customers and the states have accommodated them. And so this is why we continue to see this, even as some of these companies are starting to scale this back because it really ate into their profits in a fairly significant way. Yet still, we see the race in this new market for customers that is just leading to new and more sort of novel and creative ways of recruiting people. And potentially more widespread addiction as well. Potentially, we don't have the data on that yet, obviously, but, but why would the states be okay with that? This does get back to the very sophisticated lobbying campaign by the companies that they said, look, this is a new market. And I should say one of the, one of the sort of underlying arguments that they made was this is already going on illegally. In addition to it being popular, like constituents wanting it and the companies having the relationships through daily fantasy sports, they also have this very compelling argument that like, this is already happening. Like your constituents are already betting. They're just betting illegally, either right. through Overseas. offshore, right? Offshore companies like Bovado that are operating illegally or through like their quarter bookie. And wouldn't you want to regulate this activity such that a, there would be more safeguards and more potential detection of problem gambling behaviors. And that B, you, the state would be able to realize some financial gains from sure. this, from your constituents bet betting on sports. And so they, that was one of the arguments for legalizing. And in the process, the company said, and you got to make it attractive for us to come in here and help you. We're help, all we're doing is helping you, the state. And in order for us to get a foothold here and establish our business, we're going to need some conditions to be met. And those included these uh, promotional bet write-offs as uh, tax deductions. And so almost every state has given that 
there's some states that are revisiting actually in, in, in light of our series that sh- would show that the states have not, as a result of some of these very generous write-offs and very low tax rates as 10% or below, the states have not actually been able to like re- get that much tax revenue from this new business line. And so we've seen some efforts to reassess and recalibrate the free bet, how much can be deducted and the underlying tax rates and stuff like that. But during this first wave, a lot of these companies really got their way with the state lawmakers and regulators. And so they got these very generous conditions that allowed them to come in and do this type of saturation advertising and these types of promotions. Yeah, and this to me is really the most fascinating aspect of the work that you've been doing with your colleagues at the New York Times, because it does seem to me that if taxpayers knew that this small amount of revenue was being extracted from the process, I think they might some of them at least might want gambling to go back under the table and overseas. So what about the sports leagues? Let's talk about them. What's their view on sports gambling and now that it's legal to bet in many states? Because obviously for many decades, leagues wanted nothing of it. And even there was a NFL football player just recently reinstated after he was caught gambling on games last year, two years ago now. So curious for thoughts on that. Yeah, it was certainly the opposition to gambling goes back more than a hundred years. Yeah. The baseball is one of the sort of yes. seminal events of baseball continues to be the Black Sox scandal. 1919, the Chicago White Sox throwing the World Series and after in sort of cooperation with this gambling syndicate and the leagues and particularly baseball were extremely leery of. And all the way up through 2018, they were still, the leagues were still plaintiffs on that case, the PAPSA case. And they were opposing the overturning of PAPSA all the way up till May of 2018 in the courts, even as they were starting to dip their toes in what would become the industry through daily fantasy sports. And they're working with these companies and they're working with the lobbyists. And I think what changes is a couple of things. Number one, they were starting to see that the Supreme Court was eventually going to overturn this and that like they might as well get in there in a way that could make them some money and also draw and another factor is like increasing fan engagement like we all think of the nfl as this sort of giant dominant force in in american society american sports and it is but even it's no its viewership numbers were lagging and baseball certainly was lagging for several years and one of the reasons why it was lagging is it was seen as boring and the games were too long the games being too long Actually, could be a, a pro, could be helpful to them with sports betting because already, even when it was still illegal, but they were starting to come around and starting to work on daily fantasy sports, they were realizing like, hey, if there's an opportunity for in-game betting, as our games are three and a half hours long, right. now they're going to get under three hours of pitch clock and the like, but this could actually help both with fan engagement and with potential like revenue. If we can get in and get a cut of these bets or at least get money get paid for selling our data to sports bus, which is something that they do through middlemen, then can turn a weakness into a strength. So for all these reasons, the leagues were starting to come around even before Paso was overturned. And then when Paso was overturned, there was like an initial period where they were still saying things like, we're not saying we're in favor of sports betting, but if you are going to do it, here are the things that we'd like to see. 
And within a few months after that, they were all basically, you know what, we're on board with it. We're going to drop all pretense. And now you see sports books opening up in stadiums. Some of them, they say they're, they're on the stadium grounds, but they're outside of the ticket, ticketed area. So you still see this dance. But it seems pretty clear that like the direction that this is all headed and in many ways is already there, which is that the leagues are, have gone from being the most aggressive opponents of sports betting to being among the most aggressive proponents of sports betting. Yes. What an about face that is. Yeah. So I have to ask about college sports, which is an interest of mine here. What about the NCAA? You've got college athletes who are in some cases at the big time level, football, basketball, arguably underpaid for what they're doing for their universities, how much money they're generating for the universities. And so if there's sports gambling, let's call them syndicates, you used the word earlier, offering them some kind of deal to throw a game and they're not being paid their fair market wage, maybe they're going to take it. Whereas maybe pro sports athletes are different, but curious for your thoughts on that. Different yeah, I mean, that's, that is certainly among the concerns. It's even among the concerns in the pro leagues where it's tough to envision. You're right. like. You have these extremely highly paid professionals. It's tough to envision them being like induced to throw a game exchange for some compensation from gamblers. But it is a concern in the sports that all the leagues and the NCAA are like extremely assiduous in their education of the players, of the rules and the, and the NCAA also, it's weird that, I mean, they, I talk about this sort of two-faced approach by the pro leagues, you also see it in the NCAA where there's like some states that have in some cases with at least like tacit support from like local universities and colleges have have even as they've legalized sports betting have prohibited it on their local schools and so this is one way in which you're dealing with it that said when I talk about the two-faced nature of this you also have some schools that are partnered with the sports books where they have they have sponsorship deals where they get paid by referring people to to the sports books and helping them with their customer acquisition and so that was another that was another installment in our series where we wrote about some of these colleges that had these deals and since since our stories published some of the colleges are re-examining at and they were, I don't want to use the word like sheen, but they perhaps didn't realize like how this might look from the outside that these colleges and universities are getting sometimes big public colleges and universities are getting aid for sport by sports folks when in, in most of these states, there's a minimum age for gambling that many students would right. fall below. So who are they steering to these sports folks? And they said, we were careful never to do it in forums where, you know, where most of the people, most of the audience would be underage. I'm like, you're on a college campus. Like where are other forums that they'd say is our boosters and our alumni and this and that. And so you got to take all that with a grain of salt, but it's just more sort of fodder for this like evolution where there's Many of the stakeholders are like wholeheartedly on board, even as they continue to express objections or concerns about particular aspects of it. And in some ways, it seems like an incurable conflict to have these like safeguards or these minor restrictions in place when everything is moving towards a full open embrace of gambling and sports betting. And it's left led to a lot of uncomfortable situations where there are major institutions that are their sort of credibility is based on like their ability to operate with integrity of these games or to oversee the case of these schools, their student bodies and help shape them into responsible adults and their advertising gambling. And it's, it's beyond these particular institutions and more of a societal grappling with this, this sea change in the way that we view sports and gambling.
Yeah, maybe it's been overshadowed by the pandemic, which happened two years after after PASPA, but uh, it is a sea change, as you say, and I don't think the society has grappled with it enough. So let's talk about David Portnoy. I mentioned him earlier, founder of Barstool Sports, which promotes sports gambling. And I'm curious for your thoughts on him generally, but I don't want to necessarily like single him out because obviously there's other people out there who are promoting sports gambling. And as you said, including universities and other institutions that maybe in some circles people might think is not willing to enter into unsavory things like gambling. But tell the listeners about Portnoy and his backstory of his own gambling addiction. Yeah, this is something that my colleague Emily Steele wrote about and dove rather deeply into. Portnoy is, he's got this company, Barstool Sports, and it is a, it is really like at the zeitgeist, online culture and online culture that appeals to young men. And so this is the target demographic for these sports betting companies. And Barstool is like sports and culture and food even, but like he had this massive audience and it was in some ways seen as a very smart play by this company, Penn National, that went into business with him to use his platform and his access to this massive audience to steer customers to this newly legal offering from this traditional casino company. And so Portnoy himself, as my colleague revealed, had a history of like gambling, gambling related bankruptcy from back when he yes, was young. So right. maybe he's not the best steward for this, but it's in some ways like it's his irreverence and his sort of like as your introduction of gambling into sports and like the melding of the two that makes him so appealing and this was seen in the gambling industry as like a bold but like smart experiment by Penn National and he has gotten them into a little bit of trouble he has done events on college campuses that have been cited by state gambling regulators as pitching gambling to underage audiences <laughs> Massachusetts which is a state that is the next to go online here shortly it, it's gambling gaming commission I forget what it's called but a lot of these have euphemistic names they don't use gambling they use gaming but the regulators on that commission gave Penn National sort of a hard time and really put them through their paces over some of the revelations in our story and also some of the things that state regulators in other states had flagged vis-a-vis -vis Barstool and Portnoy and their marketing of sports betting. Probably, unless there's some major blow up that is beyond what we have reported, which also seemed, I'm not like brushing that aside, like some of the stuff that we reported, I think it was troubling to a lot of the gambling regulators, but this does seem for better or for worse to be the way that the industry is headed. There's not only they're blurring the lines between like sports betting and sports media, but what is sports media? Is it just credential reporters from ESPN or from the New York Times or Philadelphia Inquirer going into a locker room or is it? A barstool personality who has like hundreds of thousands or millions of followers on social media. This is not just a consideration for sports betting, but this is a consideration in media more broadly. And it's another example, I think, of like the industry and a new industry and technological developments moving a little bit faster than the body politic was sort of prepared for. And that's not uncommon at all. That in a lot of different industries, but it's playing out in a particularly public, particularly influential space here at the confluence of sports betting and sports and media and culture. Yeah. And the politics involved in that are pretty significant too, right? Because Portnoy is also sort of known for some of his uh, misogynistic comments, but he's also unabashedly against political correctness, right? And it seems to me that you're seeing two kind of different vectors at odds here. You've got 
folks who want to use sports to push forward a progressive political agenda. But then you've also got people on the other side, like Portnoy, who are saying that sports are an escape, an entertainment place where people want to bet. They want to, particularly guys, want to talk about girls in a certain way. Just curious for your thoughts on that. Yeah, it's a great point. And again, it just shows like how central to so many of these themes that we're grappling with as a society, sports and by extension, sports media and sports gambling. I just say back to my sort of when I was setting this up and talking about like how this has just been like this seemingly like inevitable wave that is washing over our country. This is, there's like real bipartisan support behind sports. You have folks like Stacey Abrams and Better Over Work when they were running for governor in Georgia and Texas, respectively. These are liberal heroes. And they were saying like, if I win, by the way, I should say Georgia and Texas are two of the big states that don't yet have yet to legalize sports betting. They were both saying, if I win, I'm going to support this. I'm going to push through sports betting because I see like the promise of the revenue is something that could be useful for supporting social programs of the type that Democrats Mm -hmm. more traditionally support, even as some of the concerns about addiction and the addiction related costs and bankruptcies and divorces and mental health problems are things that Democrats have traditionally held up or put more focus on as something that is, it needs more social service spending and attention. And then on the flip side, you have Republicans, prominent Republicans who have signed bills, Asa Hutchinson in Arkansas, a long shot Republican presidential candidate, Ron DeSantis in Florida, reached an agreement. We could talk about this later with the Seminole tribe in Florida to offer sports betting and online sports betting. So it's blurs some of the traditional partisan lines that we think of and has this wide support and not really a ton of opposition or even scrutiny. Who were like the opponents of it? If you're bringing it on board, like Better work at Stacey Abrams and Ron DeSantis, and then these well-oiled machines, corporations that have very sophisticated lobbying, there's a handful of anti-gambling or sort of gambling cautious groups, but just nowhere near the level of muscle behind them. And then you do have the religious, mostly religious conservatives who have expressed leeriness about this. And Georgia, it does have, even as it has gotten bluer, at least more purple, does have a strong religious conservative base. And so too does Texas. So there is some opposition there, but it's not anywhere near as organized. And this gets to like a theme that was interesting in in covering like the sports betting lobbying and legalization way, but also like you could apply to any number of other emergent issues, disruptive industries. And that is that it's just so much easier for these moneyed interests to try to push something through at the state level, even if they have to do it 50 different times in 50 different states than it is to do it at the federal level. It just like costs less, the lobbyists are less expensive, the PR campaigns are less expensive. You could give smaller campaign donations that would be required to make it down at the federal level. And it's certainly with sports betting. I think with a lot of these other instances, it's like a hot knife through butter. Mm -hmm. It's like gridlock in Washington. Even setting aside the gridlock that we're now facing, even if it were in a more bipartisan period and like that early aughts or the Clinton era where there was more cross-partisan cooperation on big issues like welfare reform and education, it still would cost more and be harder to mount a campaign at the federal level because it attracts more attention. You're going to attract more opponents and you got to spend more. And that's still the case. And and now the just seemingly irreversible and tractable gridlock that you have in Washington, it's impossible to really do anything. So if you could get your issue punted to the states, like that's better for you, no matter what issue it is. Almost. And this is obviously a multi-billion dollar industry. And so when the Supreme Court struck down PASPA, 
and they kicked it to the state. It's opened up the floodgates for these different in- industries to develop. And yet you've written, quote, states have required few protections for consumers, dedicated minimal funds to combating addiction, and often turned to the gambling industry to help shape regulations and police its own compliance with them, close quote. It seems very clear to me from what you've said so far that the states are working very closely with these companies, but it also seems like the lobbying efforts that have happened at this state level are happening in a way that the companies have a pretty considerable amount of leverage against the state regulators and the state lawmakers. Is that because the state lawmakers just perceive their constituencies to be generally pro-gambling and so they feel they might risk their political future if they don't? Yeah, that's really a part of it. Yeah. You know, you heard from many lawmakers who echoed that or they'd say, I hear from my constituents all the time. When is my state going to legalize sports betting? And a lot of these states, they pitted them against one another. They pit the industry pitted the states against each other. We had a lead anecdote in one of the first stories in the Kansas state legislature and Kansas and Missouri were like racing to legalize sports betting. The industry was like, oh, I don't know if you guys give us a hard time or your neighbors over there are going to legalize. And like, that's a powerful argument, not right. just because of the revenue, but because of the constituents and the democratic, small D democratic politics. You got to give these people they want and they will vote with their feet and go to the other state. We heard stories of when New Jersey legalized sports betting in New York had and people who would be like, on the Staten Island Ferry and they'd be like commuting to work. And there was like one part of the trip that was in New Jersey waters and all these finance bros would rush to the railing to like hold out their phone and like they had all their bets teed up and they just had to place them. Oh, Yeah, so there's a real element there, but then there's also the states are business partners with these companies. Like it is in the state's interest once they've decided we're gonna legalize to have these companies be successful because their success will determine how much in revenue the states get in tax revenue. So the states are going to be receptive when their business partner comes to them and is like, right. hey, I see that you're getting pressured to restrict advertising. Massachusetts is one where they had proposed what they call like a whistle to whistle ban. So like during the games, there could be no advertising on whatever the TV station or network that was airing the games for the sports books. And they said, this is really going to crimp our ability to do this, to offer sports betting in a way that's profitable for us and therefore profitable to you because no one will know like that this is where to go to place the bets. And that was an effective argument. And that was stripped out of the bill. We've seen that time and again, not just with the whistle ban, but with other restrictions and regulations that the industry has bristled at that they've managed to convince the states like, hey, this is not in our interest and therefore this is not in your interest. So I think we have certainly heard criticism, like what's the intent there, the whistle whistle band. It's like to not, to at least the people who are pushing it say, we don't want to poke at people who have potentially gambling issues to make it so they can't watch sports. We don't want to like tempt addiction. And one of the other things is higher rates of funding for problem gambling, detection, prevention, and treatment, and other techniques, including a state-administered self-exclusion list is the kind of thing where like, if you're about a gambling problem, you would call and be like, hey, I want to essentially blacklist myself. And very few of the states actually administer those. Instead, they leave it to the companies to keep the list. And in some states, you have to call like every single company and be like, oh, I want to be put on your self-exclusion list. And we heard stories from folks who were told that, what about just the cooling off period instead of going on the full exclusion list? It's a bit of a patchwork quilt where each state is approaches mm-hmm. differently. And 
a theme that we've seen across all these different parts of the quilt is that the industry's arguments about why not to regulate or why not to have higher tax rates or different problem gambling programs is that this will make it harder for us to be successful and therefore harder for you to collect tax revenues. And the state lawmakers buy it. Yeah, for the most part, I mean, we have found there are definitely like few squeaky wheels in some states who have raised objections, but it really surprised me like how little organized and effective, not even opposition. Sure, there's there's not a lot of opposition in a lot of these states, but even it's for like stricter regulations, like they, there is some, but it's not, you don't see it like across states. You don't see like any kind of organization and best practices where they're like telling, sharing with one another, here's how to get like a better self-exclusion program in your state. There's like a few lobbyists who work on it and are paid by the National Council on Problem of Gambling, but there's not a lot of organized organized opposition, certainly not anywhere near commensurate with the amount of organized and sophisticated lobbying machinery that the industry has. And yet another example that I'm talking about how it's like easier to push through something like this in states than at the federal level. And it does seem like a bit of a David Goliath and Goliath in this situation being the industry plus the government working together to get this uh, passed. And perhaps the 10% revenue that you mentioned before from taxes is enough to support some social programs for people. But it does seem to me that what your reporting shows is that the lack of regulation combined with these predatory marketing practices to attract customers is actually hurting the people who are just wanting to watch sports and get a, a cheap thrill because they're being, they're yeah, maybe we're being exploited. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we start, that's the fear and there's some anecdotal evidence of that, but because this is so new and there isn't necessarily the critical mass of data that would allow us to determine like how common increases in problem gambling are. We did see the National Council on Problem Gambling runs this national gambling hotline and they reported a significant increase in the call volume to it. But even that industry would say a lot of that is just people calling the helpline because they think. They want help setting up their account or they don't know how to do something. And it's not necessarily people who are like have reporting like gambling problems. And that may be true. You know, the gambling industry has fought very aggressively against any kind of national federal government type of oversight and data collection and the like. So on the one hand, they're like, look, like there's no data like to support these claims that problem gambling is right. On the other hand, they've fought efforts that could potentially lead to the collection of this of that data. So it reinforces this like patchwork quote of both regulation of data and of potential treatment options or detection, prevention, and treatment of problem gambling as this type of gambling becomes more common. And the reason I wondered earlier about 2018 being the time for this overhaul is I can't help but wonder what a smartphone technology particularly allows in terms of the speed of the gambling. That's a great point. Yeah. And that that has to play a role in the addiction too, right? Because if you can just make a bad bet and then lose a lot of money and then think, oh, I'll just get it right back and just click the same button on your phone without having to think about it while walking to the sports book. That's significant, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. And that's one that we saw play out in the pandemic where people were home and had a lot of time on their hands and not a lot of new entertainment other than like Tiger King. And in a lot of these states, online gambling started. I look, there was not a ton. In some of these states, there was not a ton to gamble on sports-wise because a lot right. of the bits caught up, but people were betting on ping pong and all kinds of stuff. I remember some friends doing horse racing in Australia or something crazy. Yeah. 
And yeah, so we saw that and you're right. Like that was one of the factors when I talk about here, are the different factors leading up to 2018 that sort of set the groundwork for this to just explode once the spring quarter returns. Certainly one of them was the proliferation of smartphones and of geolocation. So that was another thing that like DraftKings and FanDuel showed with Daily Fantasy is like when they started, when there were states that like were debating whether to legalize it or not legalize it. FanDuel and DraftKings were like, look, we can do this just in your state or we can limit it from your state by using geolocation. And so that was like another thing that was also held up when the sports betting debate really kicked off in earnest after the Supreme Court decision that like, we'll limit it here and keep it here. And that's why the people, the finance pros on the ferry would have to like reach over right. the railing because like they were geo fenced out of gambling in New York, but could do it in New Jersey. And it's like really impressive and sophisticated. You could see like how many people are placing bets like in Yankee Stadium on opening day in last year, I guess, was when New York had legalized it. And you could see the pins dropping from all the bets through the geolocation service. Geo complies the company that's done it. And I should say when we talk about how the industry is doing, it's actually not that profitable sports betting in and of itself, partly because of all the spending on promotional betting, partly because in a lot of these bets, there's a winner and a loser. Like there are people betting on both sides. If I bet on the Eagles to win the Super Bowl and someone else bets on the Chiefs and it's on the same line, if I bet $50 and that person bets $50, well, the company's not making that much money because it's all assessed. Now they get fees and what have you, but it's one of the reasons why sports betting is not as profitable as say iGaming, which is full online casino gaming, which these companies are trying to use much like they use Daily Fantasy is a stepping stone to sports betting. They're now trying to use sports betting as a stepping stone to this full eye gaming, which would be much more profitable because a lot of these games are house back games and not players against you. Some of them are players against players like poker. But, uh, but I started to say this because there are companies that are making a lot of money off this and they are like what you would refer to as like the companies offering the picks and the shovels, like the, for the gold rush analogy, like mm -hmm. people find gold or not, doesn't matter. The people who sold the picks and the shovels are still making money. So geo comply. And frankly, some of these TV networks that are accepting all this money for advertising, they're making money off of sports betting, whether the sports books themselves are making the money yet or not. Some of them are. FanDuel is making money. DraftKings is not, but is moving towards it. And one of the ways that's moving towards it is by offering parlay bets and other bets that are harder to win. don't necessarily have people on both sides of the bet. It's evolving. And in some ways I talk about uh, regulations being outstripped by the growth of the industry. In some ways, the growth of the industry is outstripped even the business planning to profitability by the company. That's common in a lot of tech companies, isn't it? Yeah, I guess that's but, right. But there is money being made. But I think the concern that I have is the money that has been promised to the states and tax revenue isn't materializing. And that's, that seems like a pretty big concern, especially given the, as you reported, there's not really a lot of guardrails set up to protect people who get in trouble when it comes to this stuff. So I want to switch gears if I can get and talk about how this has affected the economies of Native American tribes for historically, they have had on their reservations, a lot of casinos and gaming and uh, that have been a revenue stream for them. And what's going on now? Yeah, the, the tribes that like come to really rely on these gambling revenues in a big way since the 80s and even before the 80s and the, the law was passed in the late 80s, the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act, it was seen as facilitating the tribe's ability to 
use gambling and gambling revenue to uplift these traditionally very impoverished communities that got extremely raw deals from the United States government, state governments over the years. And so gambling was seen as one way for them to lift themselves out of poverty. In many cases, it did. There's certainly a criticism to be made about like the tribes, how the tribes have used the revenue in some cases, or now some of the relationships that they forge with either the states or the vendors who operate the casinos in some cases. But as a principle, this was seen as something that was something that, that like the tribes deserved, for lack of a better word, and they had used it effectively. And what's like ironic and troubling here is that the very law that was passed to facilitate the tribal gaming, the Sydney Gaming Regulatory Act is now in some cases being used against the tribes as they are seeking to negotiate through this compacting process that was set up under this Indian Gaming Regulatory Act to allow them to negotiate with the states to offer some forms of gambling, in some cases exclusively in exchange for paying the state revenue taxes from the gambling and what this Indian Gaming Regulatory Act says is that the gambling has to take place on Indian land. In case of the Seminole Compact, the state of Florida, Ron DeSantis, they tried to use an argument that was that, like, we would be the sole purveyor of online sports betting. And the way that we would get around this provision that says that the gambling has to take place on tribal lands is we would put the servers that would accept the bets on tribal lands in our existing casinos and that therefore the bets would be deemed to be accepted on Indian lands. And this sounds like ludicrous, but it is almost exactly the argument that the non-tribal operators, the sports books use in New York, which in its constitution had a provision that said that gambling has to take place on one of these state authorized casinos that were primarily in upstate New York. And FanDuel and DraftKings paid a bunch of very well-credentialed legal scholars, including former state judges, including a former chief counsel for Andrew Cuomo, who was then the governor, to say essentially that same argument that the Seminoles used, that as long as the servers were at these New York State authorized casinos, the bet should be deemed to have taken place at the casinos. And that was sufficient to get passed into law in New York, where they have a very robust, the most robust by volume sports betting system in the United States. But in Florida, the Seminoles got their compact with the state of Florida was actually blocked and overturned by a federal judge who said this is, she called it a legal fiction, the idea that the bets were deemed to have taken place on Indian land just because that's where the servers were was not consistent with a lay, was not consistent with the law, let alone like a lay interpretation of me sitting here at home placing a bet that is considered to be processed somewhere like far away. Um, and so... There is concern in Indian country that, that like many of the legal elements of the legal framework, including this Indian Gaming Regulatory Act that were useful for the tribes in setting up and creating this lucrative gambling industry are now being used against the tribes by non-tribal operators who, who see the tribes as a threat and want to get in on the gambling market without the competition. So what that's left is tribes in some of these other states to essentially enter the market as just like regular competitors to the sports books and not to try to race for market share outside of this Indian Gaming Regulatory Act system with like mixed results. In some of the states, they say, look, we got, we have the worst of all worlds. We are already regulated as a result of a higher level of regulation because we operate these casinos. And that is an impediment to our entry into this like sports betting. And now we have to compete against companies that don't have these same regulations. So it's like a real concern. And it's 
been characterized to me as like an existential threat. You say Native American tribes that have done pretty well off of gambling and whether they're going to be able to continue to do this because it's not just sports betting. When I talk about the move into iGaming, obviously like gambling, like so many other industries that once were based in brick and mortar locations is moving online. And if tribes have this like extra hurdle or they feel they have this extra hurdle or impediment to participating and competing in that space, how much longer are people going to be willing to drive to these casinos to place their bets and to help the tribes as secondary or from the tribe's perspective, the primary now behind, behind offering this type of Talk about insult injury and salt on a wound. It's mixed metaphors. That is, is eye-opening. Thank you, Ken, for that. I'm curious now if we could switch gears and talk a little bit more about what are some possible ways that states are considering regulating sports gambling in maybe a more effective way. Have you been able to report on any of that? Yeah, Massachusetts is one that, as I mentioned earlier, has been like particularly aggressive in, in pursuing sometimes novel but aggressive means of regulation. And the Massachusetts Gaming Commission is still debating this, so it's not a done deal, but they had at one point talked about banning revenue sharing by sports media affiliates. So these are companies that essentially, you know, you see their stories like on the New York Post or whatever, but companies that are these syndicates, sometimes international, sometimes national, that produce content related to sports betting and they're like tip sheets, but here's five good bets for the Super Bowl. And if you, and here's a promo and a link to DraftKings to place this bet. And when you go through and click through and place the bet, and in some cases, the affiliate, the sports media company will get a fee for referring you. In some cases, small, very like limited cases, they will actually get a cut of your bet. So that incentivizes the sports media affiliates to really drive a lot of traffic and drive a lot of bets. And it's even worse because like actually have kind of a perverse incentive where in like they're, because they're getting a cut of the take, not of the actual bet, they're, they stand to benefit more if the bet loses. So they're like giving you advice. Here's how to win money, but they do better if you lose money because they're getting a cut of what the sports books get. And I've talked to people who are involved in this business and they say, yeah, that's true. But if we're seen as like offering bad bets, no one's going to continue to patronize our sites. So even with that sort of form of self-regulation and self-regulatory incentive, Massachusetts looked at like banning this practice entirely and ultimately decided not to, or they have at least taped. It appears as if they have tabled their, their regulation that would do that because the sports betting companies and the media affiliates objected and said, same argument, like this will make it harder for us to steer business to these legal and regulated sports books. And it's just going to make it easier for the unregulated illegal sports books to continue to dominate the market share if you put up these hurdles in front of them. But we see various iterations of this same debate. Another area where I think we are seeing some like reactivity or like sensitivity to like the idea that the, that the sports books have gotten a blank check or gotten their way on all these issues is push for higher tax rates in some of these states. So New York, for instance, was obviously seen as like a coveted market for uh, the sports books because so many people, so many sports teams, et cetera. And they came in and they drove a really hard bargain and they said the minimum tax rate, at least for right now at 51%. And the companies were like, no way, like no sports books would do business with you if you did that. And not only have they done business, the sports books have done business, 
with New York, but New York State has reaped like a huge amount, and and even still, the the sports books are arguing they they will leave if New York doesn't change this rate. So for every push towards like greater regulation or higher taxation, you have an equal and opposite, or sometimes even more than equal, a greater push from the industry against that. But it sounds like. The regulators and lawmakers in, in New York State were maybe a little bit more savvy than some of the other states as far as anticipating the arguments and really driving a harder bargain. Yeah, that's right. And they also had something that the sports books really wanted. It's one thing to legalize sports betting in Kansas. It's another thing to legalize it in New York. I shouldn't say that there are a number of states still outstanding that haven't legalized it, including I mentioned Georgia and Texas, but also California, which is another sort of holy grail for the industry. And we saw competing initiatives in California over sports betting that both failed in the general election in 2022 after tens, like hundreds of millions of dollars in spending by the gambling interests and they cannibalize each other because they were like competing for votes, but they were also going after each other. And the supporters of each initiative were arguing why the other initiative was bad. We could probably just confuse people so that even as we talk about there being this general political or popular support for sports betting, you still have these stakeholders. So like many of the arguments that are the greatest impediments to sports betting in a lot of these states are getting all the stakeholders on the same page. It's not necessarily like whether the state is ready for it or whether the lawmakers will pass it, but rather whether everyone, all the stakeholders, the tribes, the teams, the leagues, the casinos can get in a room and agree on something beforehand. And in California, that is not happening. And in California, we got the Tech companies that are overlapping in some ways in what they do, but largely the biggest tech companies are doing unique things. And I'm curious, we've got Jeff Kings and FanDuel, but what do you see? How do you see the future playing out in terms of those two companies and maybe other upstart companies, if you've heard of them, taking market share in this space? Because it seems to me that these tech players have a considerable amount of leverage in this game, right? As you say, your reporting has shown there's tons of lobbying that they're doing. So what do you think the future looks like? Is there going to be one monopoly company that comes out at the end or, you know? Yeah, I think, first of all, I think that the, these, some of these companies are under a lot of pressure from investors. They'll start showing mm-hmm. a profit. They've got a lot of money and investment and in most cases have not produced much profit or any profit. FanDuel again, as DraftKings is getting closer, but late last year, they reported that in through the first nine months of 2022, they had lost they had an adjusted loss of nearly $700 million and they cut a bunch of jobs. They're not exactly crushing it. I think what we'll see is more parlays and more of these sort of novel bets that are more profitable. Another thing I think we'll see is more like vertical integration where the company, the sport books themselves will be like, you know what? We're yeah, we'll still pay on advertising, but we'll actually start our own media outlet. So FanDuel has like a TV network that they bought and they're doing like NBA programming on it. So this is, they would eliminate the middleman. I talk about like the referrals from sports media affiliates and they would also potentially one of the things they talk about, like the gold standard in the industry is like being able to like, then this is not in effect anywhere that I know, but being able to like simultaneously watch a game on your phone or your smart TV or whatever, your computer and bet on it on the same app as it's ongoing to the point where even, so again, this is not in effect that I'm aware of, but like during the world series last year, another horrible Philadelphia loss, we're really hoping that the Sixers make the final so we can lose three championships in major sports in a single year. <laughs> 
but they were be- they were taking bets on the speed of the next pitch. So you're kidding, kind of vision, you're kidding yeah, me. No, maybe it was only like a, a one or a few of the books, but that was one of the bets that was offered. So you can envision if you have a media outlet, if a sports book owns a media outlet that gets broadcast rights, that would obviously create a lot of tension and concern, but for the leagues, then that would be something they could do. And it's also, look, it's the picks and shovels that I was talking about. Like, even if the sports betting itself is not that profitable yet, if they owned a media outlet that was driving eyeballs and and getting subscription fees or whatever, then that's another way to make money. Yeah, it's a fascinating future. Imagine being a DraftKings brought to you by the NBA or vice versa. Wow. Where do you think things will go in terms of mitigating the negative impacts of sports gambling? We probably spent uh, perhaps too much time thinking about that. Sports gambling is a thrilling, temporary experience of life. And many people obviously enjoy that thrill. But still, I think the concern over the kind of, uh, dare I say, collusionary relationship between state governments and uh, tech companies to push gambling upon those who may be impressionable. Because I don't think anybody would argue with a grown person gambling if they are of right mind and all that. But as you mentioned, when it's younger people, younger people are having phones earlier and earlier these days. What do you think the future holds in terms of mitigating, let's say, the promotion of gambling to minors? Yeah, because we're in such an early stage here, I think that it's instructive to look overseas where sports betting has been legal for far longer. And there have been pretty significant backlash in the UK, elsewhere in Europe over youth gambling and gambling-induced bankruptcy. So there's a little bit of much backlash, but there's an effort by the state, by the British government to introduce more safeguards. And you see some American policymakers looking abroad for examples of what to avoid and what to incorporate. Those considerations have really gotten short shrift. And I think in some of these like new industries or even like existing industry, it takes scandal. It often Mm -hmm. takes something that really catches the public attention and creates the popular pressure on lawmakers to create the political will to clamp down on this. And I don't think we're anywhere near that right now. I mean, in response to our stories, we saw like a handful of efforts. We saw some federal scrutiny and letters from lawmakers to colleges, for instance, from Senator Dick Blumenthal to some of the colleges that we mentioned that have reached the affiliate marketing deals with the sports betting companies. But it's really, it feels like it's very much at the early stage. It feels like the growth of the industry is so far out front of any potential like backlash to it that it's hard to envision. You mentioned Calvin Ridley. That's, that was a scandal. The wide receiver got suspended for a year, but like for every case like that, you have more cases of leagues actually like allowing or like changing their rule or specifying their rules that like athletes can endorse. Right. right. Sports. Right. So we have a couple, I think in hockey. So NASCAR, there's a baseball player, I think of the Colorado Rockies, who is endorses the sports book. Haven't seen that grow too much, but like, I think probably it would take like a scandal that's not just rising youth gambling or something like that, but like a sports scandal with right. someone who is doing, breaking a rule related to get an athlete or team executive who's breaking a rule related to gambling in order for this to like really become, be, become something that would get serious consideration scrutiny from the body politic 
Because again, like the polls show right now, polls and the volume of the sports bet show this is something that's very popular. And that goes a long way towards neutralizing any sort of single voice or voices or scandal that's not really like upfront. Similar to maybe it's not as similar. I was going to say, it's, I cover money in politics and I wrote a book about the explosion of big money after Citizens United, the 2010 Supreme Court decision that allowed for unlimited spending by corporations and individuals and political advertising. And people would ask, what's it going to take for occurs to, to try to roll this back or put the genie back in the bottle? And I always say it takes a really huge scandal in campaign finance and there have been some uh, DD5, Enron, there was a lobbying scandal in 2007, Jack Aberwolf, that resulted in, in restrictions on lobbying um, contributions. But it's hard because in both that case, and uh, but to bring it back to sports betting, like you have a system that benefits the people who would be required to change something in order to like reform the system. So it's not in the interest of sitting members of Congress to change a campaign finance system that they were able to successfully navigate to get elected in the first place. And if these states are making money, and as we discussed, a lot of them are not making a ton of money, but if they were making a ton of money from sports betting, like you would think like it would be really hard to get them to change the system in a way that would that flow of tax funds to their states. And therefore you'd think it would have to be like a scandal of even like greater public fascination or public recoiling to prompt that instead impulse to change it. I have to ask one other question about all of this. In college sports for many years, there's been the conversation about universities that say they're not making money off of college sports are actually sort of cooking the books in a way, right? Because they're spending a lot of money on the football coach and they're building these opulent facilities and all of that. And you mentioned earlier that some of these sports tech companies are not yet making the kind of money you would think they're making given the marketing that they're showing us a nonstop when we're watching sports games. How do we know they're, those figures they're telling us are legitimate? Yeah. I guess that's a good question. Because the tax revenue depends upon those numbers, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. As we discussed, they do also have all these write-offs for the tax revenue that they have states from the promotions. But these are these are publicly traded companies. DraftKings, actually, there is, I think, an SEC investigation of some of the claims that they made in their IPO documents. So there is a level of scrutiny there that comes with being a publicly traded corporation that you would hope that the books would be open enough that someone who had both the aptitude and the interest in auditing of you would hope there would be federal regulators to whom that would qualify, would be able to take a look at it and be like, hey, this is not quite right, or you're, you know, this is financial shenanigans that you're using to show something that is different from what you're telling investors or what have you. And to, to be totally candid, like I haven't done that myself, and that's probably a worthy pursuit of any number of publicly traded companies in any number of different industries to really go into. And having said that, like the system is set up to catch these types of things. If there were a funny business going on, obviously we've had many frauds and publicly traded companies that took many years to sure. to catch. And I'm not in any way suggesting that's what's happening with the sports betting world, but just that it's yet another way in which this sort of new industry maybe hasn't gotten all the scrutiny that that uh, you would think would be commensurate with its impact on a treasured institution like American sports. And if they're spending so much money on marketing, but also on lobbying, then I suppose and it does make sense that they're not maybe as profitable from that perspective. So thank you, Kenny. This has been fascinating. And I know I've kept you longer than, than I asked you, but I'm curious now, 
we're at the end and I was asked by a guest about what the power of sports means to them. It seems like the power of sports gambling is pretty significant over individuals, of course, but also over these leagues and governments and so forth. I'm curious for your thoughts on that. What is the power of sports to you? Yeah, it has the potential to unite communities across other dynamics that are dividing us, whether it's racial or partisan or gender or ethnicity, origin, et cetera, that it has the power to unite the people in a way that few other things do. And down here in Washington, D.C., I still listen to my sports radio 94 WIP when I'm making lunch, and it makes me feel connected to my childhood and my friends, even as my friends are all over the country and the world. Like we still text about, we were texting last or two nights ago about the Sixers against the Minnesota Timberwolves. These are people with whom I had a lot in common, but have totally separate lives. Don't see that often. And this is still something that brings us together. And I know that's a case for a lot of people. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Ken. Yeah, it was a pleasure. I enjoyed it. It was a real honor. I appreciate your time on the Power Sports Podcast. Thank okay. you. Take yep. care. Bye.